a petition that God would forgive us our debts. And so this morning, I will read to us again the passage where our Lord teaches us to pray. So this is from Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so they might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's Word. It is eternally true. Let's pray for His help this morning. Father, we pray that this passage would be helpful to us, that we would learn to pray as you would have us to pray. And we pray for your Spirit's help even this morning to know it. In Christ's name, amen. So, forgiveness. It's kind of why we're here. It's the, it's the big reason that the church exists, is because we are forgiven. And so, there is a little bit of a question, I think, as to why, if we're here because we are forgiven, why we would continuously ask God, forgive us of our debts. It's pretty clear that this prayer is meant to be an example, but an example in everyday prayers, that this is not to be prayed once a year or once at the beginning of your Christian walk, but this, all of these petitions to be part of our regular prayer life. And if God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus once for all, the sacrifice by which we gain entrance into heaven, then what in the world can we mean by forgive us our debts? Um, Martin Luther said it very well when he said, when the Lord bids us repent, he bids us to come daily in repentance. That the Christian is not marked by a one-time understanding of their sin, but by a continuous understanding of our sinful nature and the war that rages against us in Christ. That the Christian doesn't sin more as he ages, but he does become more and more aware of the sin he does commit. And those sorts of sins ought to make us more and more grievous as we age. Because we know the preciousness of the blood of Christ more. Because we know the, the cost that was actually there. That we may have understood a little bit at the very beginning when we began our walk in Christ. Now we understand it much more. And so our sins become more and more heinous in our eyes. Even though the, the committing of them usually 
is not that heinous as it once was. And yet there are times, it's important to remember this, that Christians who have long walked with the Lord sometimes sin in very grievous ways in the middle of their walking. This is no more true than in the life of David, who is clearly a believer, and then somehow, some way, entered into all the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and was stubbornly not confessing his sins. And so if this is us, if this is what we do, is we bind up our sins and we don't acknowledge them, then this should be our experience if we're a Christian. If we continuously pretend as though we do not have sins to confess, um, it, should, it should grieve us. And so this was David's experience before Nathan came and confronted him. This is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This was experience pretending as though he had nothing to confess on a daily basis all the while committing all these terrible sins with this woman, with her husband, with all these other men involved in his crimes. But then, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That it's important to remember that even though the normal Christian life is usually not marked by treacherous sin, that sometimes it is, And the antidote always, whether it is treacherous like David's or menial, is for confession to happen. That is always the answer for the Christian. So the the questions then become, if this is to be the normal experience of the Christian life, the daily praying for our debts to be forgiven, how do we know what our debts are? How can we know what we have done? Because oftentimes... If you have been a Christian for any length of time, most of the time, you're not doing a lot of the things you used to do that you knew were sinful. So the conversion point, at whatever point it happens, you're like, well, I used to steal, I no longer steal. Right? I used to lie a lot, I no longer lie a lot. Um, you know, I used to be money hungry, now I'm not as money hungry. So how do we know what our debts are? Well, God tells us what our debts are. He is very careful to do so in his book, the, the Word, the Bible, the Scriptures. Um, we've talked about this when we talked about what it meant for the will of God to be done on this earth, that the will of God is bound up and found in his law, the Ten Commandments summarized of his law. And that's the same way that we know our debts. Um, the larger catechism, which we're not saying on Sunday mornings because it is large, uh, has... a wonderful exposition of the law of God uh, where it says, you know, what is the law of God? It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. gives an explanation of why this matters and what that's about. And then it goes commandment by commandment, giving both the positive aspects of what we ought to do because of this commandment and the negative aspects, what we should refrain from doing 
and in some instances in multiple questions. Uh, For instance, in the commandment, honor your father and mother, there's lots of things going on there. And so it lays out what we ought to do if we are a superior, meaning a father or a mother, in whatever area of life we find ourselves. That doesn't mean just biology. It means wherever we are in the spiritual fatherhood or motherhood of someone. Or what we ought to do as inferiors, which just means when we are the children of someone how we ought to act towards them. Um, And so it's very good. I was going to print it out, and I forgot to, but maybe next week I will remember to. And you will have kind of a a go-to list to help us know our debts. Um, And that brings up kind of this thing that I talk about, I don't know, often-ish. I don't know how often. Uh, But the way we read our Bibles matters. Um. The, the modern way that most people read their Bibles is something like this. I feel bad, therefore I'm going to read a verse that makes me feel better. In fact, there are whole books dedicated to this idea, which sometimes is right and good. Uh, you'll ha- they're called like Bible promise books or something like that. I feel this, and then I'll have this like ten verses you can read. Those can sometimes be helpful, Uh, But if that's your steady diet of how you read the Bible, of just, I feel this, therefore I ought to do this, you're not getting the full import of what God would have us know from His Word. Um, God's Word is exactly what it sounds like when we call it God's Word. He's talking to us. And there's no part of what He says that isn't important to hear and to know. Which means, when God says, not one jot, one tittle of the law shall pass away, he means that. Um, and so when we're looking at Scripture, when we're reading Scripture, if we never con- are confronted by God's Word pressing into our conscience while we are reading, we are probably not reading it rightly. Because God is not like us, especially like someone like me. I talk a lot. You can ignore a good portion of what I say most of the time because I'm just filling space and everybody knows it, right? It's not that I'm saying false things. It's not as though I'm just making stuff up. But there's a lot of what I say that just has no import. It's not important. And that's a lot of our conversations, right? Uh, If Greg was here, I'd really rib him. It's fine to talk about Purdue football, um, but it just doesn't matter, (laughs) just doesn't matter. And he knows that, and we know that. And there's lots of things that we talk about on a daily basis that just don't matter. And we take that same sort of idea when we read Scripture, and we're like, well, that doesn't really... We don't actually say this. Like, we don't go, ah, that doesn't really matter. But we treat the Bible kind of that way. We skip over things. We kind of pass over what we don't necessarily want to spend time looking at. And especially if it's unpleasant. Because we've been trained by our environment to just change the channel if you don't like what's on, to get a, put the book down and go get something else, to, to go to a different restaurant if you got bad service, right? We, we, we are a people of choice, and so therefore we choose not to be uncomfortable all the time. And yet God's Word often, often, very often, makes us uncomfortable if we actually take the time to read it and let it hit us. 
For instance, oftentimes what we do with verses like this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. Is knife not more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap in gathering barns, yet their heavenly Father feeds them. We'll read that whole passage, and we will just go, our heavenly Father feeds us. And we'll just feel good about everything that just happened, even though there are very uncomfortable things that preceded that, which is, therefore, do not be anxious about your life. That's uncomfortable. If you just sit and think about how many things you are anxious about right now. What are we going to eat for lunch? When will Joe finish preaching? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? What is the election going to actually turn out to be? How many houses in how many seats in the house are going to go this way or that way? What is this guy's take on things? What about the tire pressure in my car? What about this? You have a hundred things on your mind right now. Do not be anxious about your life. That should hit you. It should make you squirm under the weight of it because we are all anxious about our lives. And that is the way we ought to read God's Word. He didn't say those few things before it just so we could get to the end. He said them all directly before it because they actually matter. And that before you get to the end of the Father cares for the birds, therefore He cares for you, you have to get to the point where you realize that you are being anxious. There, And to be anxious when God says not to be anxious is a sin. It's a debt. That's a debt. That's a law. That's a rule. That's a keep. Positively, negatively, all these things matter. This is the way we ought to be reading God's Word. It should have an effect on us immediately. An indebtedness that we feel. Not because God is not gracious to give us the freedom from that debt, but so that we might actually understand how deep our debt really is. Um, I used to do math. I don't do math anymore. But there are these things in math called logarithmic curves. Right? They go like this. You guys, high schoolers, you're paying attention, they do this. Okay. So, our understanding of our sin, I'm going to use this curve because sin is bad and it goes down, ought to grow exponentially deep. We should have an understanding of God and His Word and His law that is significantly deeper 10 years into our Christian faith than it was at the beginning. Not because we're sinning in greater ways, but because we understand this is the debt that actually was owed. It's infinitely deep. It's an impossible debt. It goes down and down and down and down and down and down and down. This morning, um, in our confession of sin, which, by the way, is just I have 52 confessions of sin, and I have them labeled for 52 weeks of the year, and so this is whatever week this is, 45 or something. So I didn't pick this like, you know, I need this prayer to this week. Um, the, uh, in your mercy, help us to see that all things we pine for are shadows, but you are substance. They are quicksands, but you are mountain. They are shifting, but you are anchor. 
Um, this is the idea that the things we trust in are actually worthless. It's similar to what Paul says when he says, I consider all things, that includes the good things that he had done, all things as worthless rubbish as compared to the knowledge of Christ. That often what we tend to do, instead of dealing with our debts, is we kind of instead just dwell on some of the gooder stuff that we've done. We think, well, you know, my debt isn't that bad. Let's just deal with this stuff and say, God, thank you for not making me like that man over there who beats his breast. That's, that tends to be how we pray, which is not with penitence. Not penance, we're not Roman Catholics, but penitence. Actual feelings of indebtedness that must be accounted for. God in many different ways and in many different places says these sorts of things. Um, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then in 1 John, surrounding a verse that we many of us know and have memorized is this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Skipping the verse we all know. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him, and Him there is Jesus, If we say we have not sinned, we make Jesus a liar. And His Word is not in us. What's the verse we all know? 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We forget the hard work that we actually have to confess them and know them. Name them. Be familiar with ourselves. A good way to think that this is not like some random thing is just think about all the commands in Scripture, like what I just read, which was from Ephesians, right? So put away all... um, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The Ephesian church was a church of Christians who believed the gospel. And they had to be reminded, as did almost all the churches in all the letters or similar lists, don't be bitter. Don't be angry. Don't clamor. Well, if that's not the normal Christian experience, then the Ephesians were just real bad Christians. We must learn to be honest about our actual debts. Be honest with ourselves so that we might confess our sins to God. And this is hard work. It's uncomfortable work. It's bitter work. It is, however, essential work. One of the main problems, and correct me if I'm wrong, Anna, for doctors is they have patients who don't tell them everything. 
And if you don't tell a doctor everything, what do you want from them? They will not be able to help you. God is the good physician. If you think by not telling him this particular thing, it's helpful to you or to him or to anyone else, you have been fooled. You have deceived yourself. Don't do it. Don't do it. Be honest about the sins that are actually there. They don't scare the Lord of glory. He died to save you from them. It's not a surprise to him when you go, God, the, I, I don't want to be bitter, but if they look at me one more time like that, I might snap. Is that just me that's ever thought that thought? Or is it all of us? Is it just the, the one group of Christians in the New Testament that struggled with this? Or was the New Testament written for all of us? Or, to put it more bluntly, as the Apostle Paul is wont to do, let's look back into the Old Testament at something like, oh, I don't know, the Exodus. Now, if you take any time and you read about the Exodus and the people of God who were chosen by Him and rescued out of slavery and made into His children, you will almost inevitably say this while you're reading it. My goodness, these people. <laughs> what is wrong with these people? And Moses himself does that and hits a rock and is not allowed in the promised land because he says about the people, what is wrong with you? Crank. He gets mad. It's, it's a natural reaction to reading the story of the Exodus. If you read it, and, and you read it quickly, like just as a story, and you're like, okay, the ten plagues cross the Red Sea. A couple weeks later, you're at Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain. It's shaking and glory and thunder and power. You guys want to build an idol? Because uh, I don't think God is with us anymore. He... Do you guys, you guys want to make something up right now? And you go, there's no way. There's no way that I would have joined in that. I would not have given my earrings for that. I would not have been part of the party at the foot of the mountain that Moses and Joshua hear. I would have been in my tent going, those poor, ridiculous people out there having that party when right there it is. That's where we think we would be. We would be the, the person in the tent not participating, going, wait till Moses gets down the mountain. That's who we think we are. And then Paul. Paul does this. By God's power and spirit, he says this. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and then in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And you're like, ah, I feel good about that. That's right. We're baptized. We're in Jesus. And he goes, nevertheless, with most of them, 
God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Do you know the actual statistic on what most of them means there? Every male 20 years and older but two. So approximately 600,000 to a million men plus wives and children, depending on the circumstance of where the earth swallowed them up. So we're talking a million people. And out of those million, Joshua and Caleb. Most means 99.9999999% he was displeased with. You're like, oh, that's depressing. It is depressing. And then you think, well, okay. I mean, that was them. Again, if I, were, if I was there, I would not have done what they did. I would not have been with them. I would have been on Joshua and Caleb's side, no doubt. I would have been like, listen, those other ten spies are crazy. We should go into the land. Now, these things took place as examples for us. so that we might not desire evil as they did. What does that mean? It means we are just as susceptible to every one of those ridiculous, bitter, grumbling sins as they were. When we read the book of Exodus, it's not to go, I can't believe they did it. It's to go, woe is me. I am the same. I am the same. I would have put my earrings in the pot. I would have called for the, the golden calf to be made. I would have been dancing in the party. I would have been this close to being consumed by the fire of the mountain of God. And by this close, I mean I would have been had it not been for the grace and mercy of God in Christ Jesus. So the results of this sort of thing, if we actually do that work, and we, we do that, What is the result of that? The main result is humility. You don't read the Bible anymore like, those people. You read the Bible like, I better put this down because I've got enough to deal with after two verses that I don't think I can bear any more of it. In fact, oftentimes, uh, in my commentary reading this week, this came up over and over again, that one of the mercies of God is not to reveal fully the extent to which you are indebted to God because you could not bear it. It's a mercy of God to give us daily repentance. Because if He were to unveil our eyes, we would be consumed by the horror of it. And so it is His mercy to go, just today's stuff. Just what I, just what I helped you with today to know. Confess that. And then tomorrow, other stuff. And then the next day, other stuff. Because if I put this all on your plate, you could not bear it. It's a similar question to what Jesus said to Peter. Can you actually drink this cup? You cannot. So humility. Humility allows us to consider others better than ourselves. It actually works in a secret place of confession in the prayer closet at home so that when someone does something stupid and flagrant and sinful in front of you, you don't immediately go, I would never sin like that. And that's really the only things that we think. When people sin like we sin, we're empathetic with them. Like, well, I understand. Like, I probably would have done the same thing. 
Don't worry about it. But if they sin in a way that we think we would never sin in, because we're not humble, the immediate thought is, how could they have done that? But if we actually take time to be humble in prayer, confessing our debts to God, it will be less likely that we will think of ourselves as better than others. And when we do, we'll confess that debt so that God might help us so that we would not do it again. So it helps us to consider others better than ourselves, which leads to the ability to do things like love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, I can't do that. When I think of my enemies, I think of bad things, spiteful things, unpleasant things. Like God, maybe if you just gave them flat tires today, that would be great. Now, maybe if you did this, that would be fantastic. Not hoping for God's vengeance and wrath, and not hoping for his salvation and mercy, but hoping for my own. But if you are humble in prayer, confessing your debts to God, it will help you to love your enemies knowing that, but for the grace of God, there would I be. I would be right there with them. I think of this a lot in, re- in regards to certain friends of mine who I love dearly. God, for whatever reason, not because I'm better than them, kept me from going down that particular path with them. Because I would have. They were my best friends. Why wouldn't you do what your best friends do? I don't know. I can't answer that question other than by the mercy of God. Which means even though some of my best friends and I disagree about a lot of things, and some of them are not Christians, I can hang out with them, love them, And then the final thing, the proof is in the forgiveness. So the, con- the prayer is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or in the same way as, or like in the way that we forgive our debtors. The proof of whether or not you're doing the secret work of confession comes out in forgiveness. It's the fruit of humility to be able to forgive. If you find your heart quick to bitterness, this is not good. You should confess it because your job as a Christian is not to be bitter. It is to be bearing with, forgiving one another. It is the testament of actual faith is the humility to forgive other people. And... It is a sign and a comfort to those who actually do. That this prayer does two things. It warns us if we are those who harbor always bitterness and resentment, unwilling to forgive, unwilling to get past. And for those who work towards forgiveness, are aware of their own failures in forgiveness and want to be forgiving, it's a comfort to us to go, no, I... I really don't hold it against you. And then God comforts us and says, see, you have forgiven, you are forgiven. You have forgiven, you are forgiven. And so what finally is a a place to go to test yourself here? 
I think this is where we go to find if we have the humility that comes from confession that leads to forgiveness. It's a very popular chapter. Read a lot of weddings. Ignored in its context all the time because it is one of the most uncomfortable passages to read because we all fail so miserably bad at it. But here's the test. Love is patient. It is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Do any of these sound familiar with what we've been talking about this morning? As for tongues, they will see... Oops, sorry. Love is... It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Love. What is love? How do we know what love is? Love is there. And love is just an exposition of the commandments of God. It's just a a reiteration of what it means to love your fellow man found in the six of the last ten commandments. This is our test of faith and this is where we ought to be aware of our own lives. And as we increase in our confession of sin, the secondary thing that happens in all of this, and by secondary I don't mean less important, it just follows from it. And that is, as our knowledge of our own sin increases, our own depths increases, our knowledge of the Savior's grace and mercy exponentially increases. Where sin sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. If we don't spend time doing this hard work, our knowledge, understanding, belief, hope in the gospel will be paper thin. Paper thin. But if you confess your sins as they are, which is an infinite depth, how big does God get to you in the grace of Jesus Christ? Infinitely deep. Beyond all comprehension. Magnificent overwhelming, beyond reach. It's secondary, not because it's less important, but because it follows from it. But it is overwhelming in its goodness to find the depths of Christ's love. Even that, even there, for that right there, you, will, you have died? How amazing is this grace that we know? That all these years into my Christian life and I'm still dealing with that and you are still forgiving that. That is the overwhelming conviction of this prayer. That God in Christ Jesus has infinite grace to extend. You do not need to feel ashamed to confess sin. That is why He came. It's to free us.
from the trappings of pretending as though we have not sinned. We have. We do. We continue. And Christ in his infinite goodness has made an unbelievable way through the mess. A parting of the sea. To close, I'm just going to read a few verses. Parts of verses. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind to one another, God in Christ has been kind to you. And then I'm going to read this final one and then we're going to take communion. This will be part of communion this morning. The the importance of this is not just for our own selves being right with God, but for us, the people of God, to be in right fellowship with one another. Our Lord tells this parable in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And it is, again, just as many of God's words are, intense, hard to bear. We need His mercy even to hear His word. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents an unpayable debt. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and he forgave his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. And went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heaven will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Part of what happened table is the continuous fellowship of God's people with one another. And that fellowship is broken if we have this sort of thing in our hearts. And that oftentimes place it is. It's in the heart. Sometimes it falls out and it becomes public and we have to deal with it as a church or as an elder team or whatever. 
That's actually much easier. Spilling out, then we have stuff to deal with, and we can actually sort through it. But often what happens, this sort of thing happens internally. That there is a debt against you and throttle somebody. But you don't actually do it physically. And so one of the things that is important for you is to not do this. To be aware of when you are doing it so that you can confess to God so that He might forgive you so that you might be humble with your servants and your fellow neighbors so that the prayers of the saints would not be hindered. The importance of this sort of community is found We partake together of Christ's body and blood. And we take it wrongly if we do not become aware of these sorts of things. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment. And ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the Two things. Judge us if we do this sort of thing, if we harbor this in our heart invisible. It's as bad as when it comes spilling out. In fact, it's worse spilling out. We do other than in your own private prayer closet to deal with God and your indebtedness to Him. But the good news is, if you listen to the end, if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined that we may not be condemned with the world. That this is one of God's infinite mercies to us. To give us the ability to judge ourselves rightly so that we might confess our sins and be found in fellowship with God and with man. And so we take this morning with all of this in mind asking, pleading with you to discern your body this morning. Let God examine you. Confess your sins. Be made right with Him. Be ready to extend forgiveness and grace and mercy to your fellow brothers and sisters. It is God's kindness to us. And so then you can come to the table and you can partake in the body and blood of our Lord. This is real. His grace is given to us in this meal. We partake truly in God, in His Son, Jesus. When we... Immediate death upon us. This is why many of you are... This is a serious thing to take because it is the memorial supper of Christ. And so, 
if in your heart this morning you have discerned these things, I will read some of these things to us. Therefore, following this, in the name and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, all idolaters, blasphemers, despisers of God, heretics, and all who form separate parties to break the unity of the church, and all perjurers, and all those who rebel against their father and mother and against their superiors, and all those forming of sedition or mutiny or quarrelers or fighters or adulterers or fornicators or sexual deviants or thieves or lovers of money or plunderers or drunkards or gluttons, all those who lead a scandalous life. If this is you, and you are not repentant, don't take. Don't take. It's not for you. If, however, this is you, and you are willing to confess your debts, repent of your deeds, freely, come. This is for you. The Lord's Supper is not set for the sinless. In fact, this prayer, above all others, clearly states that the gospel and Jesus Christ came for sinners. That's who he wants in his family, are the repentant. So then he gives us this supper to encourage our hearts that when we confess, he actually covers it with his body and his blood for ourselves and for the sake of our fellow man, that we might live in harmony with one another. And so I, I pray that you would believe these things, that you leave them to you this morning, that he wishes to make us partakers of his body and his blood. And the only way to be a partaker of the body and blood of Christ is to repent. So know yourself. Let God's word divide you down to soul and spirit. Don't hide from it. Let it shine upon you. Confess those things that are deep and hidden. And all the more glorious this supper becomes for you. All the more glorious the fellowship of the saints becomes for you. Lift up your hearts when we take these elements. And look to Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Who has died once for all so that we might have a way to the Father who is our advocate. This is what we do. If I could have a couple men come. Let me pray. Father, it is with great trembling that we because we don't trust your grace but because we see more clearly now our sins. Strengthen our knees this morning. Give us faith to confess our sins. Give us hope in the righteousness and, and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us the strength by the work this morning. We pray this in the name of our good Son, Jesus, who loves us. Our Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, And broke it and gave it to his disciples. And I, ministering to you, give this bread to you this morning. Go ahead. Hold on to it and we'll take it all together.
Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had broken and given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do you in remembrance of me. Let's take. Father, your son's body and your son's blood was shed so that we might have forgiveness, the remission of sins. And life was lived. We have righteousness that is not our own given to us so that we might stand in your presence. We pray, Father, this blood would be precious as we remember our sins and our sins are made known to us more and more that your blood, that the blood of your Son would be eternally precious, made more deep, more rich, more pure to us than it was even this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you go ahead and take, there is wine on the outer ring, juice in the middle. That's what I almost interrupted myself when I forgot that we were serving. In the same way, also after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup, as you eat, it's blood shed for us. If you would stand.